Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris O'Fall, the editor of Toolkit. My guest today is Edgar Wright, whose new movie, the uh, musical action car chase film, Baby Driver, will be opening up in theaters the 28th in time for, it'll be everywhere for the long holiday weekend. And, uh, you know, without getting, I think IndieWire readers know Edgar's work pretty well, but without getting into too much of an introduction, it's it's really, Edgar, the best action film I've seen in since Fury Road. It oh, really thank you. I appreciate that. It's it's amazing. And I, I you're 22 years old. No, Listen, no. Uh, no, no yeah. <laughs> you're listening to the John Spencer uh, Blues Explosion uh, Orange album, and Bell Bombs comes on, and you're thinking, yeah, that's a that's a that's an action scene. That's a car chase. Yeah, I think I was actually 21. It's 1995. I mean, it, what's funny is that like when I've told this story, people have said, "So why why does it take 22 years to make the movie?" And I was thinking. When I'm twi- when I was 21, living in North London and on the Dole, like and you know, sort of, I had made my first movie, but I wouldn't have called myself a film director. I am not really in the position to call up anybody and saying, "I've got this idea for this car chase movie set in the <laughs> States." But seriously, the really the best way to explain it is like, I would listen to that song "Bell Bottoms" from the album Orange, and I would imagine this car chase. And it wasn't something where it was like a consciously sitting there and thinking up like ideas for films. It would like come to me in a vision. It's like I couldn't listen to the song without thinking of this car chase. So I think in a weird way, it's almost like kind of like having an action movie version of synesthesia. Is like I couldn't listen to the song without thinking of the scene. But it literally, what's funny is that what I thought up when I was 21 is not a million miles away from what we actually shot, which was like the idea of a getaway driver sitting outside a bank to the first half of the song and then the gang running out and then the, like at the two and a half minute mark sort of driving and getting into the car chase itself and I guess the next part of the sort of premise that came out of it is I thought oh well what if he is listening to the song what if the point of it is that he's actually actively put that song on and that he's now got to time his car chase mm-hmm. and, and high speed getaway to this music so and I think that then sort of was, you know, uh, basically bringing together like my love of like pop music and film, and I can you know trace it back from like, you know, Reservoir Dogs and Tarantino, like Martin Scorsese and Goodfellas, John Landis and American Wealth in London, and though he uh, though he only did it once, um, George Lucas with American Graffiti, mm-hmm. you know, which is probably like. That's kind of really the start of this idea of music supervision and choreographing to pop music. Yeah, or like the sense in the idea of like a jukebox soundtrack. And in fact, you know, American Graffiti, like Baby Driver, is, is another movie that is entirely diegetic. Mm. Is all the songs are actually happening in the movie. They're not just, they're not necessarily like score, they're actually sort of playing. So that was really the sort of the idea for this is like, you know, and obviously Blues Brothers is another one that's kind of like a great example of like a sort of action musical with this though is I thought well you know coming up with a character who has listened to music the entire time and what's funny is that as then the idea sort of like developed over the years when the iPod came out I mean I know you'd already had the Walkman and the Discman Mm -hmm. but it wasn't until the iPod came out and you had playlists and the idea of an entire record collection and the idea of non-linearly jumping between songs yes and making a playlist and literally having the opportunity to sort of soundtrack your life and I certainly, like, when I first got the iPod, that was something that was, like, a major sort of change in my listening habits was that, oh, and now I'm going to play, you know, whatever I like and actually sort of be able to kind of, like, switch moods and essentially DJ my life. 
And so that sort of became, you know, the other aspect of the character that was kind of key is that you have somebody who is, um, can't live without music. That's something that has, um, you know, is a sort of a pleasure, has also sort of become a, an obsession. Because I think for a lot of people, obviously music is an escape for most people. And I like the idea of that is also the case with Baby, but also he uses music to escape, literally. So, and then like the idea, like the other thing around that time when I first started writing it properly, like 10 years ago, I read that Oliver Sacks book, Musicophilia, which is about, you know, the sort of mm. our relationship with music and the brain likes the relationship with music. And that gave me sort of extra ideas, including the idea of the tinnitus, which is something that I had sort of suppressed from childhood that I'd had a, like uh, attacks of tinnitus when I was seven or eight and it'd be very painful. And when I read about it in the book again, it suddenly sort of like was, you know, sort of the sort of missing piece that brought everything together with the character. In that sense that, um, I, I think the idea is, is that uh, when you have that ringing in your ear from mm. tinnitus, that music becomes a, somewhat of a release from that, right? Is that, is yeah, that the I, idea? Yeah, there's something that I had read about. I never used to do that when I had tinnitus because I never had like a Walkman or anything at the time. Mm. But I had read that when I was reading up about it, that that's what some sufferers of tinnitus do, is playing music as a way of just kind of like, as a distraction from the sound. And I thought, well, that's it. It's like something, that's what he does, and that's sort of a reason for him kind of like creating this bubble, you know. And then also, the, even the movie itself sort of becomes about puncturing kind of like baby's bubble. At the start of the movie, at least in the first two scenes, he's kind of like existing within like sort of like his his own world with his kind of earphones in and his shades on and you know and has created this uh he's distancing it from the reality yes. also of what's going on because he does he wants to think of himself as not being part of exactly. uh, of this crime world so the music is part of that the music yeah. is w a way of like compartmentalizing like some sort of buried guilt of like I'm actually a criminal and doing something <laughs> really bad, and sort of the, that's sort of what the movie becomes about, and where it sort of takes a darker turn, especially in the last third, is that you start the movie with the the, the glamour in inverted commas of being like a sort of a high speed getaway driver, mm -hmm. and you know, and through the movie that romanticism is getting sort of like ground down mm -hmm. to the ending of the movie where it's like the nightmare of being a criminal. So there's all these things that these sort of separate kind of themes all started to kind of like sort of like come together. And music was always the central sort of focus of it. I just thought that would be a really interesting thing to do. But yeah, that is, that is, he, he, he is using the music to sort of like um, uh, to escape. And it strikes me that the structure of this is is kind of a, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but a rather simple, if you start thinking about like a Hong Kong action film or even like a big action film and you think about it in terms of five set pieces, yeah. but you think about like an American musical tradition in which there's also those numbers, but those numbers become not just things that are in the film, but become this like expression or become this like almost like a story beat. It almost seems like you kind of took those two and superimposed them on each other. Like why not treat a, even though you have, you have these musical car chases, but why not treat those like five set pieces that you would have in an action film, but in kind of like a, a story structure of a musical, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, if you look at like um, Hong Kong cinema, like look at Jackie Chan and John Woo, like they both like will um, kind of 
point to kind of Gene Kelly and like sort of MGM musicals as one of the biggest influences. Right, yeah. There is that structure. I mean, sort of basically like uh, Jackie Chan is the uh, is the Gene Kelly of like sort of um, of like sort of martial arts. I think actually, in funny enough, in the script of Baby Driver. The, the the end of the credit sequence where he goes to get the coffees in the stage direction as it said it, it at the end it said it said baby is it said he is the gene kelly of the coffee run <laughs> <laughs> that's what it said in the script um but yes it was something where you approach it like that in terms of okay it's an action movie and it's predominantly a car chase movie so it's like more two car chases one car duel one gunfight one foot chase mm-hmm. and it's like you think of it those are the production those are the production numbers yeah. And yeah, that's absolutely right. It's kind of a way that you would think about it. You'd think of the set pieces as like these are num- these are numbers, you know. Now, I think anybody we have a lot of filmmakers that read our sites and listen to this podcast, and I think anybody that's taken um, a piece of footage and 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 put some music on it can it knows how much music can can make it something completely new mm. and amazing. But what you're doing is something a little bit different than cutting to music. You're saying I'm going to write shoot and design to the choreograph to the music yeah. rather than you're just simply cutting to the music. I, and and then there's also this other part that you've thrown into this, which is this idea that um, you want to shoot the action practically. Yeah. Um, not see, which, is, of course, means I have to imagine this process of taking those two components, choreographing the music and shooting practically and needing to be on the beats and yeah. figure that out. That has to be, so much of this movie had to be figured out in pre-production and it had been a unique process to before you started rolling camera in Atlanta. Yeah, I mean, I'll take you through the steps in a second of exactly how it works. But it's funny, like even doing some interviews recently, I had a lot of people say, oh, it's so great how it's edited to the music. And I'm like, well, not to take anything away from my editors who are incredible. And I think, you know, I think they deserve to get like nominated for their work in this movie. However, it's very different than say, right. A Suicide Squad twa- trailer where it's like, we got all this cool footage, let's slap um, Bohemian Rhapsody on it and we'll cut the footage to Bohemian Rhapsody. That is something where you're, you've got the footage already and you can put it, into a, you know, put it into a movie. And that's the majority of how most movie music works is you're looking for sort of needle drops and stuff. And then with this, it was different in terms of not only are the songs written into the script, but, and by the way, when I wrote the script, I had no idea whether I'd be able to clear all these tracks. <laughs> I'd say 95% of them we did clear, which is kind of amazing. So I would actually let the music dictate to me what was going to happen in the scene. So it's okay, like this, okay, this is a car chase set to um, bell bottoms. So it's, I would literally like break down the timing of the song then write the scene and sort of find things to fit that. The story beats for different for different parts of the song. Almost. Yeah, and so the car chase beat, the sort of beat sheet for the car chase written in stage directions, but matching the song. Then draw the storyboards to go with that. Then see if it worked by editing those storyboards to the music. And then when you actually bring like the real people into it, it's like sort of stunts and the camera department and the choreography department, then you start having to think about it, and the locations department, you start having to think about it in terms of the timing. And so it, then it's, you know, and working with like uh, the amazing stunt professionals on this movie is getting them to think in terms that they've never really thought of before. Is like, oh, I need to, this is the first three blocks is this part of the song. And then on this part of the song is when they go through this intersection and the other cars hit each other in time of the music. 
and then this next part goes up to here, but then we need to get into this alley for this part of the music. And then when we get to this part of the music, this is where the sirens come in, so we need to kind of get to this location. So it both made it incredibly complicated, but it was also giving you a literal roadmap within the song of where we're gonna be and at what point, which is something you don't normally do, because most of the time if you shoot action, it's just like, hose it down with as many cameras as you can, figure it out in the edit. But with this time it's actually sort of a thing is like, with Bell Bottoms, you know that song is five minutes long, so the car chase is not gonna get any longer than that. So as such, there's no deleted footage in that sequence. It's like, we shot enough footage to fit that song, and that's it. There's no like other like 45 seconds of action that we shot. That is basically the sequence. So I think it was a fascinating thing for the stunt department to actually get their heads around as the idea of like, like matching the song. And the one other thing that we did in the prep, which is kind of crazy, because they some of them date back to 2008 when I first started researching this, is one of the first things I did before I wrote a single word of the screenplay is I took about eight of the songs that I wanted to use and with a British DJ whose name is uh, Mark Nicholson, a.k.a. Ozzie Miso, which is O-S-Y-M-Y-S-O. You can find his stuff on YouTube. He helped me make these like sound effects mixes. So we had the songs and then literally, and they're so close to the finished thing, it's kind of bananas, um, where it's like, you know, bell bottoms like pulling up, here's the engine going like, okay, this is the bit when they get out the door, here's the door chance when they get out the door. Then they go to the trunk, they open the trunk, they slam the trunk and turn the music. Now they've gone inside the bank. Now he's like sort of um, singing along. Now he's putting his windscreen wipers on and all of that stuff we put in in sound effects. When we sent the script to actors in like the studio, we sent in this like, on the, we, we had these iPads where we put a PDF of the script and we had this software designer make a PDF of the script with the songs like baked in. So you could press a button and listen to it. And not only did it have the songs baked in, but it had the songs with the sound effects. So I think that's one of the reasons that I think we got the amazing cast we did is because it was something where they, it wasn't so much that, it wasn't just that they could see it in the script, is they could literally hear it. So it was one of the things I think that attracted some of those cast members is they like, I can visualize this film because like I just heard it you know in my sense is that um, you know you could say okay this spin out is gonna be six seconds but I, th I, I talked to Darren Prescott your amazing uh, second unit director yeah, yeah. and I and, and uh, you know Jeremy Fry is just an amazing driver and my sense was that what happened would be they would go test it and then they say like oh it's it's uh, yeah, you'd have to time it. Yeah, no, it's eight said, seconds or it's yeah. twelve seconds, and we have. And then you have to come back and adjust, right? Like maybe we have to do a cut to Ansel here, or maybe we have yeah. to, or or maybe we'll add another turn or something. It's literally that you have to get that precise, right? No, it's like crazy things where it's like sort of like the the real like um, the real route would be like he turns down this street, then he turns onto this street, and then he turns into this alley. I would say to Darren, I'd say, you know what? I need more time on this stretch. So rather than take the actual turn that he would, he should keep going and then we'll fake a turn and go <laughs> back to that street because I need like 10 seconds straight for this part of it. So it was, yeah, it was a fascinating experiment. And I think sort of, I, I, I mean, I know like, you know, with, with Darren, it was like sort of, it was something where, it was something that I don't think he'd ever been asked to do that in, that, in, that, in that such precise terms. 
But you know, it's what's great. I mean, the, the best thing about doing these movies, and one of my sort of proudest things about doing these movies, and, and it's especially been the case on my last three films, because I'm very sort of, I, I work with a lot of the same people, and I've worked with a lot of the same crew for like nearly 20 years now, my producer and my production designer and my editors, you know, um, I've worked with forever. But the great thing, like on some of these movies, is bringing people of disparate skills together to create something completely unique. So to take people like Darren Prescott, Jeremy Fry, and Robert Nagel, who's the other sort of car wizard um, involved in this movie, and pair them up with Ryan Hefferton, who's a dance choreographer who did Sears Chandelier video, um, pair them up, pair those guys together. And Bill Pope, first time I'm working with him, the cinematographer, you know, you create something completely new, and it's just by I mean, it's this sort of, I know it's the same as like staying the obvious, but like you, you create something kind of like a recipe that's like sort of distinctly different just by adding in different crew members. Is this is like the, this is the combined um, efforts of all of these people working together. And I find that stuff fascinating and you know, it's great. And then I think I'm right about this. You. For this film, you needed an on-set editor. I don't think you normally do that. I know a lot of people do that. Do you, did you have to do something? And just in that sense of like making sure like that you had the, the beats and the time yeah. and that was going to work? I'd always like, it wasn't until I did Scott Pilgrim that I started doing some editing on set. I'd always been dead against it. And usually that's that thing is you don't really want kind of like people from the studio looking over your shoulder and stuff. However, I remember when we were doing Scott Pilgrim, a lot of those action scenes in that and in The World's End designed in such a way that there's no coverage, that they basically like, the shot that you were shooting of the action is the angle and there is no other angle, which is a very Hong Kong thing to do. It's like, you know, a lot of the Jackie Chan kind of like movies are shot in such a way that there's no coverage. It's like there's one shot which is this move and then there's another shot which is this move. And so that's, you know, but it's again a very precise and sort of, not time consuming, but it's, Basically, you're having to make every shot count, and there's no like. You need that safety of knowing on set, like we got yes. it, because you because can't, you're not doing you, any coverage. You there's can't no get master shot to go to. You can't get the band back together in two months to no. do this again. So the to only way to do that is you, but you, but you, you edit it in together on set, and the same with the world's end. The world's end features two or three action pieces where there's no other coverage than the shot that you're looking at. It's not, there's no B camera and there's no wide shot to go to. And most of the time it's because with that, some of that choreography is that you can't do a master shot because like, if you've got actors like fighting, it's that thing of like the actors can maybe get through five moves and then you know like you have to reset stuff. So with World's End we started editing on set and with the f action stuff it was incredibly useful. And then encouraged by that with Baby Driver, We've got two editors, Paul Matchless and John Amos. Paul Matchless was on set every single day. And that was partly sort of just, just keep track of the music. It's like, is, it, is this fitting the music and is this gonna work? And we on sort of like, because with all of the sequences, there are moments where like, sometimes at the start of the scene, sometimes at the end, sometimes in the middle of the scene, there'll be a moment which is like lining up with the track itself. Or sometimes things like the tequila scene, everything is, incredibly on beat and everything is like in time. So having Paul edit on set meant that you could just kind of keep that like sort of um, in mind and just see if it was working. So a good example of a scene, I remember like some people, some actors don't like watching stuff back at all. Like um, 
uh, Jamie Foxx I would love watching stuff back and I think it used to sort of blow his mind because he couldn't believe that it was like we were editing it together and it was all happening and I remember there's that scene which is one of my favourites in the movie actually when Kevin Spacey is doing the, the plan, the briefing scene, and Ansel Elgott is listening to Dave Brubeck, and essentially you can't hear what Kevin Spacey is saying, and uh, Jamie Foxx is like looking over at Ansel, kind of like an annoyed that somebody is doing something. And I, I think it's, it's like Jamie is acting like he's being upstaged by this kid. And we had edited that scene together with the Dave Brubeck, so by the end of the day, we had like a cut of the, a cut of the scene that was pretty damn good and pretty close to the finished thing. And Jamie Foxx was watching it and he goes, I don't understand how you guys have done it this fast. <laughs> he goes, I don't see how, that, how is that possible? And I said, I was just like, I think we've just been thinking about it for a long time. But it, edit, with poor editing on set, it was really a sort of, a, for, you know, you're going out on a limb to sort of do a movie where it's like everything is in time with the music. So it was really having poor editing on set it was like, is this going to work? My assumption is that one song that you restart was almost a, you got something and you, that was a product of having a, a edited yeah. set, right? Yes, is exactly right. It's so just to set this up, there's this scene where the song, like, Baby has to drive to the music. Like, yeah. he can't perform without it. And he runs out of song, so he's got to restart the song, yeah. which they do. And I got the sense that, that maybe you had too much good stuff. And yeah, you that's actually exactly had to what the happened. Song. You're absolutely right. So it, it's the second car chase set to the damned. And in this case, I had written the scene to the damned, I had drawn all the storyboards, and I edited the storyboards to the music, and then Bill Pope, my cinematographer, watched the animatic and said, you're going to run out of song. And I was like, why do you say that? And he says, because you have edited it very fast, and cars are not that fast, and some of these stunts are going to take longer in reality, in live action, than what you have done in this animatic. And I was like, Okay, I said, I think, I mean, yeah, I think we'll be all right. <laughs> like that, <laughs> classic sort of, I'm way too optimistic. Of course, Bill Pope was absolutely correct, is that we'd run out of song. He's been doing it for a while. <laughs> yeah, Bill Pope is like, somebody like who shot the Matrix Reloaded uh, car chase, which whatever you think of Matrix Reloaded, I think everybody can agree that that car chase is astonishing. Yeah, astonishing. So he's like already shot one of the best car chases on film. <laughs> um, so he was right. And we were editing that scene, and I'd seen a cut of it, and it's like, oh, we ran out of song, like, so early. And it's like, we shot this great stuff. I don't want to cut any of this out. So I was looking at it and thinking, well, and I thought, I don't really want to have a second song starting. That seems silly. And I it can't, like, have the rest of the sequence without a song, because that goes against the premise of the entire movie, and also the idea that mm. Baby can even move or operate without the right song. So then it kind of hit me as I thought, oh, I got it. Uh, Baby rewinds the damned and plays the last verse and chorus again. And, um, and what was great about that, so it was a happy accident or something. So that shot where Baby rewinds the damned on his iPod, he gets into a new car. They have to abandon their car, get into a new car. Uh, they carjack a new car. And then he puts the iPod <laughs> on and rewinds it. That was a shot, that insert I did on the last day of the shoot like maybe like four weeks after we did the rest of the chase. But the cool thing about that is like a bit of like sort of um, something a creative, you know, sort of uh, um, problem solving is it is exactly what the character would do because it, within the premise of the movie, Bell Bottoms, the opening scene, goes off without a hitch. Mm. Like nothing goes wrong. They don't even like, not a scratch is on the car. Nothing goes wrong. 
the second chase with the damned, things go wrong immediately. The gang starts squabbling about their masks. He has to start the intro over. Like he's already had to start the song again, uh, like once. You know, then like when they're trying to get away, a member of the public is rammed into their car to try and stop them. And then they get chased again and like literally run off the road. So we're thinking, well, this works because like if everything had gone like clockwork, Baby would have got out in time to the damned and by the end of the damned song, he would be away. Mm. But that didn't happen. So he's been derailed. So it makes sense that when they finally get into another car to try and get away, he rewinds the song to wrap it up. You're like him. What am I going to do? Got to yeah, do it. Exactly. Um, there also has to be, and I'm, I, you know, I know uh, Walter Hill's The Driver, which is, is, I mean, thank you for putting that film on the pedestal that it finally belongs to be on. I think I, uh, I, think uh, I finally convinced Walter Hill that it's a great movie <laughs> after like going on about it to him for the last like seven years. But one thing <laughs> is, is that I, and I imagine to come back to the second unit idea is, is that obviously you were working with that very talented team ahead of time, so they're on the same page. But there's also this element I have to imagine that you have to collaborate very closely with what you're shooting because, and, and to tie it back to Walter, there is such a strong connection um, between every turn mm. and what happens with the car. And you almost need to see what that second unit is and, and get very specific about, and I know Ansel trained a little bit to get some of those moves down. And John down. as well, John yeah. had too. But there's this element of, um, a cause and effect, that geometry that's, that Walter Hill has so perfect. He turns, you understand why that car goes into the wall. Yeah. And, and I have to assume, I know that's probably something you were emulating or trying, you know, I mean, shooting for. I have to assume to execute that, that takes incredible collaboration because you're not there for, you know, to make sure that you're looking at the second unit stuff and then how it t ties well, to the unit. Well, it was, I mean, it actually worked. It was not easy, like, sort of, um, because one of the things that was, like, a real... It was really tough was that like we only had like three weeks of second unit. Now on like a Fast and the Furious movie, they would have the second unit running for the entire shoot. We can only afford three weeks of main second unit. So what basically would happen is that like those guys would be shooting solidly for that three weeks, but sometimes we would be shooting at night, also doing action. It was really tough. We would be shooting action at night and they would be shooting a different part in the day. And so probably my like sort of the most strung out I was on the entire shoot would be like, okay, I've done a whole like night shoot. Then before I go home and go to bed, I'm gonna go along to second unit, have breakfast with Darren, see how it's going, stick around for the first couple of shots, go home and sleep for six hours, go back to second unit, see how they did in that day, and then, and then go to work on the night shoot until like eight in the morning the next day, and then repeat. And I think that happened for like, there was a point in the middle of the shoot where I like worked 20 days in a row because I was on main and second unit. The thing that was great though is that sort of, so Darren had like sort of like a roadmap of like what he needed to do. And then we would all watch the dailies together. And then the cool thing you could do is not only do we have to shoot the actor stuff. So what would happen to happen with that is that sort of like, say like a freeway sequence is like, you know, like Jeremy and uh, Darren and Robert Nagel are shooting the kind of the outside car stuff. 6 a.m. to 11 on the I-85. Then like Bill is coming in with me at like sort of an 11 a.m. to do, do the actors. Five mile. To do the same five miles with the actors. And then like we leave them to do a couple of other bits and then we go and shoot like main unit stuff like starting at one. So it's just like, I mean, I mean it was that thing where everything was, 
scheduled to within an inch of its life that if one thing went wrong, like the whole like fucking day has gone wrong. Luckily, we were went everything went pretty well. But there were things like, for example, where and this is where the great collaboration comes in is like, okay, we've shot like um, they've shot some of the second unit stuff. We've shot the actor stuff, and you look at the scenes cut together, and then you know me or Bill will say, "There's a shot missing. We need this final piece of the jigsaw." And it's like what it really needs is like these two shots, and so it's then it's a thing of like, oh, we need to get back to that location and just shoot this one wide shot, which is going to tell you exactly what's happening. And sometimes there's something that like you can do all the storyboards, you can shoot kind of stuff around the storyboards, but then when you watch it back, it's saying, oh, there's like a, a storytelling shot that's missing, and it's like we need a wide from this angle to tell the story. So I think that's where it became a very close collaboration where you're. Essentially, like, you know, similar way. If you're like sort of redoing each other's bits mm. until like you've got something that is wholly sort of like a team effort, and that was kind of really great way of doing it. And 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 especially with some of the, so basically, like we had those three weeks of second unit in the middle, and then for the rest of the shoot, it would be Darren was there for the rest of it because he's stunt coordinator on the rest of the movie. And then throughout the rest of the shoot, it would literally be any time we had like a camera that we could split off. We'd be shooting another scene. I'd be like, Darren, get the camera, lock it to the Subaru, go and get that shot of the wheel. And then it's like, hey, can we get, whilst we're doing this, we don't need a second camera on this one. Darren, why don't you go off and get that shot of the mirror? And literally on the last day of the shoot, we split up. We were shooting the bit outside. We were literally shooting the first part of the movie. I remember the very, the sun is going down, like, like John Bernthal and John Hamm like and Aza are all wrapped and Ansel's wrapped as well it's literally like we have like an hour before the sun goes down it's like Bill let's get the steady cam. we'll go and shoot this traffic lights Darren take Roberto and you guys get the shot of the mirror and so it's just, just this thing of like even on a big budget thing you still get down to kind of like the lowest low budget shoot of like sort of everybody scrabbling to get every setup. last thing and we do have to wrap up here is you know, what we're talking about is is doing these things practically. Mm. And you've got this uh, series, this heist movie series going on at BAM, some of your favorite movies. I assume a lot of them very much inspired Baby Driver. And as a cinephile, as someone that loves these films, beyond Baby Driver, which I think it, it serves definitely the purpose of the movie, but just in general, why is practical? Why is taking this trying to, for a fantastical movie, trying to build so much of that realism of the car chase versus relying on CG, so important to you, both as a, both as a filmmaker, but also you know, as someone that, that loves these films. Well, I think, here's the thing, is that like, if you're making a car chase movie and you didn't get to shoot any car chase stuff, what's the point? <laughs> Number one is like so. If I'm just like my only bit is sitting on a green screen shooting people reacting and like sort of steering wildly, it's like what am I doing? Like so, you know. So part of it is just the sort of the excitement of like doing it, but also I think like even if audiences don't quite understand visual effects, I think that people can feel it when it's practical. They can feel it. There's something you cannot fake about exactly the visceral nature of the action. When in that opening sequence, when they're doing those turns, you can see Ansel Elgort's hair move. You can see the people like shifting around on their seats. 
you can see John Bernthal grab the oh shit handle, and he's not just doing that as a character, he's doing that as an actor, because they're taking this kind of like t corner at high speed. And these are things that you just can't fake. And the thing is, is that usually, you know, like sort of, a lot of movies use green screen on a practical level. It's like, well, second unit are in Lanzarote and the actors are in London, so let's do all that stuff on a green screen. Sometimes it's a purely practical thing. Um, with this, it's something where I, I mean, and, and I think sometimes you get movies where they're using green screen as like a crutch, you know, like so it's, I don't want to say it's like lazy, but it's just sort of, it's just easier. So I remember when I said to the line producer that I wanted to shoot all of the actor shots on the road as well, he went, he just did this reaction where he went, okay. <laughs> like that, you know, it was like that little beat where he was thinking, he wasn't saying no, but he's like, okay, you've just made the, the, the film twice as complicated. And it's like, it's going to be worth it. It's, it ends up being worth its weight in gold. Those like real in-camera reaction shots. It's also, you're saving VFX money. So it's something like, it might be time consuming, it might be time consuming to shoot, but it's still quicker and cheaper than making like a green screen shot look good. Yeah, and I think there's, and just leave it here, but I, I think there's also an element of, you know, Baby Driver's a lot of fun, but it also is a reminder of those films that keep you on the edge of your seat. Yeah. And I think it becomes a little something about an action scene as being that thrill versus being a spectacle. Yeah, I mean, I really wanted you to, um, you know, live the movie vicariously through Baby, because it's a movie where like, Ansel Elgott's character is in every single scene and you are essentially seeing the movie through his eyes and hearing it through his ears. At the same time, it's a completely subjective filmmaking where it's like, put you in the seat with him. I mean, I, on the first day that we did any of the car stuff with like Jeremy and Darren, I like, sat in the back. Of, it was a shot of John Bernthal where like, um, you know, uh, of him in the car and I said, I'm gonna sit in as well. They said, do you wanna sit in on this one? I said, yeah, and it was like, and it was the first time it's like, oh my God, you're never prepared for what it feels like to be going that fast around the corner. <laughs> and it was incredible. And that's the thing is like in terms of sitting there as a, as a director, is also this is what I want the viewers to feel like as they're watching it. Well, I imagine it's a gift that you got to be able to make a studio uh, original action film. And it's, it's right rare, but it shouldn't be this rare. Studios should be making more original movies. So you've got to give credit to TriStar and MRC for actually doing this one. And it is a gift to us. This is the most fun you're going to have this summer. Um, people really need to see this movie. Because in, in, uh, beyond the fact that it's good, but to also let Hollywood know that we want, we want more of these. And we want more Edgar Wright movies. Edgar, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Have a good Appreciate one. Appreciate it.